September 2004, a search was launched for a missing three-year-old girl near Huntington Beach, California. The twist? The child had been missing since 1969. For 35 years, her father had been told it was a custody issue. But now, it was a murder investigation. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. As you can tell from the intro, this is a case involving a child. So if that's not something you tend to listen to, I understand if you skip this episode. But before we get started, we do need to have our quick little annual election time chat about advertisements. If you hear an ad that is not in my voice, think of it like a YouTube ad. I don't approve them individually, and I'm not giving any sort of endorsement. Thankfully, unlike with YouTube in podcasting, I can exclude certain categories. So I do have political ads blocked. You should not be hearing any election, candidate, or political issue-related ad on my show. And if you do, it's because the person who paid for the ad miscategorized it, whether on purpose or accidentally. If you do hear a political ad, please let me know through email or by tagging me on social media and tell me where you live because some of these ads are geo-targeted. I can take that information and send it to the ad platform. I cannot manually pull ads, and since a lot of them are dependent on your location, I can't even see all of the ones that may be playing for everybody out there. But of course, the ad platform can, and I do know from past experience that it can take a little bit for the system to catch up, but I can at least try to get it pulled from my show. And with that out of the way, let's get into this week's case, and I want to thank Amara for suggesting this case. A lot of my cases are listener suggestions. I usually try to thank the person in the beginning of the episode. I don't always remember, but I always do appreciate it, so never feel shy about sending in case suggestions. The main source for this episode is NBC News, which did the most extensive sit-down interviews out there with some of the people involved in this case. And it's not just a thorough look at the case, it's a very touching one as well. When I read the transcript from the episode it was covered on, I knew I wanted to highlight this case. And another major source was the LA Times. They covered a lot of the legal aspects in this case in great depth, And I don't know that I could have had an episode without NBC News and LA Times because they did the most extensive reporting. All sources will be linked in the show notes. This case spans decades, so we will go ahead and stick with our timeline as usual. This starts with a young couple, Donna and Dick Pulsifer, who grew up in El Cajon, California. They met as young teenagers at the start of high school when they went to one of their very first high school parties. Dick gave Donna his number, she soon called him, and the two truly became high school sweethearts, dating exclusively for the next three years. When they were juniors in high school, around the age of 16, they got married. The early and somewhat rushed marriage was because Donna found out she was pregnant with their first child. 
It was the 1960s, and these were the type of kids who did what was expected of them. They were good students, sweet kids, and they did what they thought was the only right thing to do when they found out Donna was pregnant. They got married. Donna dropped out of high school to be a stay-at-home mother to their son Richard Jr., Meanwhile, Dick was working nights while he finished up high school, and the two managed to make ends meet and maintain their own apartment during all of this. When they were around 20, their second child, Michelle Kelly Pulsifer, was born on St. Patrick's Day, 1966. Two years later, though, in 1968, The stresses of being a young married couple with small children had Donna and Dick rethinking things. They decided to separate in what seemed to be about as amicable of a situation as there could be. Donna and the kids moved to the Garden Grove Huntington Beach area, which was a good two hours north of where Dick and Donna had grown up. In the divorce, Donna was given full custody of the kids, which was pretty typical at the time, and Dick had every other weekend visits. Rather than make the children do the four-hour round trip from mom's house to dad's house and back, Dick would usually opt to just have his visits with the kids at Donna's house. And Donna didn't really enforce a strict schedule of my weekend versus your weekend. Whatever weekends Dick could make the trip up there to see the kids, she would let him see them. Like I said, everything was good between them in balancing custody and visitation. In 1969, a year after the divorce, Dick found out that Donna had a new boyfriend, James Michael Kent. And this wasn't a casual dating relationship. Donna and the kids ended up moving in with him and his son. So they had Rich, who was six, Michelle, who was three, and Mike's son, who was either also six or maybe he was two. The reporting goes back and forth on his age. Regardless, they were all living under one roof, but it wasn't a very big house and the kids shared a bedroom. Dick checked in with Donna one weekend in the spring of 1969 while he was visiting his children. He just wanted to get a feel for how things were going. He didn't mind that Donna was dating again or even that there was a stepfather in the picture, but he wanted to make sure everything was going well. Donna said it was. Mike was actually really good with Michelle and Rich, which I'm sure was a relief for Dick since his kids were spending so much time with this man. Dick enjoyed his visit with his kids, though looking back, he remembered that he did spend most of the time with Michelle in the living room. He said she was an easygoing three-year-old, so they were just playing with toys or watching TV while Rich was running around outside. At some point in July 1969, Dick went over to see the kids at Donna's house in Huntington Beach. He hadn't called ahead, and he had not visited in a little while, so this was an impromptu decision. So he knocked on the door, but no one was home. Dick left, assuming they were just out, and he came back a couple of hours later. They still weren't home, so he looked around, peeking over the fence and such, but he really saw nothing. 
Dick couldn't get in touch with Donna, so he called one of her friends, and the friend said that Donna, her new boyfriend Mike, and all three of the kids had moved. Dick wanted the new address, but the friend didn't have it, just saying that they moved not just to a new house, but out of the state entirely. Dick asked around a bit and found out that the family had just packed up and left one day. And according to NBC News, they left no forwarding address. Dick and Donna were young when they married and young when they divorced. So Dick really didn't know much about physical custody versus legal custody. He just agreed with what was the standard custody arrangement at the time. There was no battle or fighting or anything that would indicate that things were not going to stay amicable. He never expected Donna to just up and leave with the kids, but now that she did, he assumed Donna couldn't do that. Surely there was a law or a rule or something that meant she had to at least notify him of the children's whereabouts. So Dick went to the authorities to report this and find out what his next steps were. And they basically told him there was no next step. The way they had their custody agreement set up, Dick essentially had no rights. He was shocked. His only option was to go back to court with Donna and fight for a new custody agreement. But without an address, he couldn't have her served with any court paperwork he might go and get. That said, Dick figured Donna would have to get in touch with him sooner or later with an address because he had no way of paying child support if he didn't know where to mail the check. But Donna didn't get in touch. It was several months, nearly a year later, when he heard anything even about Donna or his kids. It was in 1970 that a mutual friend called him to say that Donna was back in town. They hadn't seen Michelle, but they did know Rich Jr. was with her. Dick tracked down where Donna was staying, and he showed up to see his kids. As soon as he saw that only Rich was there, he demanded to know where Michelle was. Donna said she was with friends at the moment and was very vague about what that meant. So Dick said he needed to see and talk to Michelle right away and know she was okay. Donna looked at him and told him it was none of his business. Dick was taken aback, but the authorities had essentially told him the same thing. He asked Donna if he could at least have some time with six-year-old Rich, and Donna let him take his son out for a little while. Once Dick had Rich alone, he did ask a few questions about Michelle. And if he was alarmed before, that was nothing compared to hearing from Rich that he, too, had no idea where Michelle was. He told his dad he hadn't seen her since before they left California, nearly a year earlier. He said that when they packed up the car to move, he and his stepbrother were told that there wasn't room in the car for Michelle. 
so she was staying with family instead. Now, there wasn't room for Michelle, but they had taken all of their pets. Donna left her toddler behind in favor of their cats and dogs. Dick was livid. When he brought Rich back to Donna, they got into a yelling match about it. Dick had been so agreeable through the separation, divorce, and the custody agreement. Donna seemingly took advantage of that and disappeared with his kids. And now he learned that she sent Michelle off with some unnamed family member. Dick told NBC News correspondent John Larson that he thought in that moment, if his daughter could vanish like that and be kept away from him, it could happen to his son as well. So he told Donna he was going to take Rich with him, and she threatened to call the police. So Dick left and went to the police himself. He said he wanted to file a missing persons report for his daughter, Michelle Pulsifer. He told them that her mother had taken her and would not tell him where she was. I want to note at this point, Dick didn't think anything bad had happened here. Donna was a loving mother. She was attentive. He never had any concerns about the safety of his kids when it came to Donna. What he thought was happening was that she was playing keep away with Michelle. This was some immature game, but surely if the police got involved, Donna would be forced to let him know where Michelle was. To compare this to a more recent case, it really sounds like Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow. J.J.'s grandparents just wanted to know where he was and reestablish contact. That's why they got the police involved. It was when their mother, Lori, blatantly lied to the police about where J.J. was that an investigation kicked off. In this case, though, it would not get that far. The police referred the matter to the district attorney, who looked over the custody paperwork and told Dick there was nothing they could do about it. Donna had full custody, and she said she knew where Michelle was. And as long as she knew where Michelle was, Michelle was not missing. This was a matter for the family courts. Now, had they followed up on this and did a welfare check on Michelle like they did with J.J. Vallow and demanded they get physical confirmation that the child was okay, this case may have turned out completely differently. But they didn't do that, and Dick didn't manage to get back into family court on the matter because as suddenly as they appeared in town, Donna and Rich disappeared again. Dick didn't know where Donna was to have her served with any custody papers. Though he tried to find her through the 1970s, he didn't have any luck. No one who knew the family before they left California seemed to have contact with them. And if they did have contact, they certainly weren't telling Dick about it. And without email and Facebook and all the other ways we have to get in contact with people these days, there were only so many options for tracking someone down when the police have washed their hands of the matter. Ten years went by since Dick's last visit with Rich and 11 years since he had seen Michelle when suddenly, in 1980, 
he was served with court papers. Donna, who had recently divorced Mike Kent, was looking for child support to be restarted. Dick had not paid it since 1969 because he had nowhere to send the checks. But now, thanks to this paperwork, he had an address. It's not clear to me from the information I have available whether Donna had actually directly filed for child support or if, in the course of becoming a single mother after her divorce to Mike Kent, she filed for state assistance. That can trigger a child support case to be opened. Regardless of how or why it was opened, the request for child support only listed one child, 17-year-old Rich Jr. Obviously, this bothered Dick, and using the address he had for Donna now, which was in the state of Wisconsin, he was able to use that information to get her phone number. After 10 years, he finally spoke to Rich Jr. again. After talking to his son in what had to have been an overwhelming rush of emotions, Dick got Donna on the phone. He asked where Michelle was and why she wasn't listed on the child support paperwork. Donna evaded the question, continuing to refuse to tell him where his daughter was. At this point, it just made no sense. She was opening up contact with Rich through the child support order, but not Michelle. But at least this got Dick into family court, and he brought up the fact that they had two minor children, not just the one listed on the paperwork. He wanted to know where Michelle was, and Donna was continuing to refuse to tell him. So the judge ordered that Donna would not get any child support until she told Dick where Michelle was living. Thinking this would be the ultimate push, since Donna did have quite a bit of back support she could collect on, Dick was surprised when Donna still would not comply. And this seems like another opportunity where the authorities could have intervened, like they did with J.J. Vallow. However, they did not. The door, however, to Rich Jr. was open, and Donna could not shut it this time. Rich was too old, and he forged his own relationship with Dick. He decided to move in with his dad in California in 1981, when he was 18. With Rich in his house and Donna not running interference, maybe Rich would remember something that would lead Dick to the location of his daughter. At this point, he was still believing and holding out hope that Michelle really was with family or friends somewhere. But with what Rich started saying, it opened up the possibility that Donna wasn't just hiding Michelle and playing custody games. It was possible something bad had happened. Rich remembered that one day, 
Michelle ran into their shared bedroom early in the morning and woke him up. She asked him to hide her. He said she seemed scared and he knew that the day before she had gotten in trouble for having a potty training accident. So he had her climb under his covers with him. And there they hid, the way a three-year-old and six-year-old would think would be convincing to adults. But Donna came into the room almost right away. Donna picked Michelle up and took her out of the room, and that was the last time Rich had seen her. Shortly after that, within a day or two, Rich remembered being in the garage and seeing a cardboard box that was covered with blankets. Donna saw him in the garage and told him that the box had a motorcycle seat in it and he needed to stay out of there. And then it was just a day or two after that that the family up and moved with all of the animals, but without Michelle. They settled in a suburb of Chicago. Rich told Dick that he had asked his mother where Michelle was over the years, but she insisted that topic was just not up for discussion. She would change the subject, and he eventually learned to stop asking. There was one other memory Rich had. It was probably a year before he had contact with his dad reestablished, and he woke up in the middle of the night and heard Donna crying. Her door was closed, and he was groggy with sleep, but he thought he could make out two of the muffled words she was saying. One of the words was Michelle, and the other was dead. With the hopes they could get Rich to remember more, Dick booked a session with a hypnotist. Rich was an eager and willing participant in this attempt, but there were no more memories unlocked that gave any clue as to what happened to Michelle. A few more years passed, Rich was becoming an adult in his own right, and one day in the late 1980s, he called Donna and broke the boundary she had established when he was just a little boy. He wasn't a little boy anymore, he was an adult, and it was time to confront the unknown. He asked, or rather demanded, that Donna tell him where his sister was. According to what Rich told NBC News, Donna told him that she wasn't going to tell him, and he insisted he had the right to know. All Donna really said was that they didn't have enough money to raise three children. They had to make a choice of who to keep custody of, and they chose him and his stepbrother. Rather than interrogate Donna, she told him he should just be grateful. Rich asked straight out if Michelle was alive, and Donna said yes. Figuring he could find her on his own with more information, he did ask if Michelle was still using the last name Pulsifer. Donna said yes to this as well. In that same NBC interview, Rich said that he started to ask Donna what was it going to take for her to tell him where Michelle was, but Donna cut him off. She said she was not going to make a deal with him, and that was that. Rich eventually stopped speaking to his mother entirely. 
He called her once in the mid-1990s to tell her she was going to be a grandmother, and she never called him back. So now we are going to fast forward several more years, and Al Gore invented the internet. That Al Gore inventing the internet joke is pretty dated, I know, but I am old. So Dick, Rich, and now Dick's wife have a new tool to look for Michelle. They searched news articles, school alumni listings, email address directories, and websites that just had random information about random people. They searched for every variation of Michelle's name again and again and again. Obviously, some hits came back. Michelle Pulsifer isn't a one-of-a-kind name, but they could rule each of them out for one reason or another. One time they got a pretty close hit, not just to Michelle Pulsifer, but to a Michelle Kelly Pulsifer, the whole name. Dick was able to talk to this woman, though, and learned this wasn't his daughter. While the internet searching did not get them closer to Michelle, it does illustrate how, 30-plus years after they last saw her, they were still looking. In 2001, Dick attended a family reunion, and while speaking with family, Michelle came up. He explained how he hadn't seen her since she was a little girl, and Donna refused to tell him where she was. One of the people he was talking to was Anne Friedman. She had been married to Dick's brother, Freddie, way back in the early 1960s. The two of them had a daughter together before Freddie was shipped off to Vietnam, where he was killed in combat at just 22 years old. Anne had gone to the Pulsifer family reunion at the insistence of her daughter, and it was a chance to reconnect with the family of her first husband. After hearing how Dick had been kept away from a child he loved for so long, she offered to hire a private investigator to look for Michelle. In the years since losing Freddie to war, Anne had become a wealthy woman, and she said money was no object here. She told the Orange County Register that she loved Freddie so much, and this was his brother, so she had to help. She couldn't eat or sleep until they got this going. Dick took her up on this offer immediately. He had already exhausted everything he could do himself, and Anne hired a PI and gave him $15,000. And he found nothing. They were discouraged, but at the suggestion of someone else, they hired former FBI agent Paul Chamberlain, who had experience with kidnapping cases and now worked in the private sector. Paul told NBC News that when this case came in front of him, he thought it looked easy enough. It was a case of a mom taking the daughter and hiding her from the dad. He would pull some names of family and friends who may have Michelle. He'd run her name and information through a few databases, and then boom, within a month or two, they'd know where she was. No one made it into their 30s in the early 2000s without having some sort of digital trail. But this turned out not to be quite as easy as he thought. He talked to a dozen or so people connected to Donna and her ex-husband, Mike Kent, 
and they knew nothing. People in California had assumed Michelle had moved with Donna and the rest of the family to Illinois, and the people in Illinois were told that Michelle was with relatives in California. None of them had seen or heard from Michelle in decades. The investigation even took them to Canada, where Mike Kent had family. But no one had Michelle. School records in both the areas Donna and Mike lived, but also where their families lived, yielded nothing. She didn't show up in any databases out there anywhere. Anne had funded tens of thousands of dollars into this investigation, But Paul Chamberlain eventually stopped sending invoices because he became as passionate to finding out what happened to Michelle as everyone else. After spending a year on this and finding absolutely no evidence that Michelle Pulsifer existed after 1969, he gave his report to Anne and Dick, and then he took it to the Orange County District Attorney. He believed foul play was involved. The DA's office took it over from here, and they had an investigator go interview Donna, who was remarried again and living in Wisconsin. The investigator told her that they were looking into the whereabouts of her daughter, Michelle Pulsifer, and Donna essentially said she also did not know where Michelle was. Donna gave this investigator the story that she had told Rich when he was just a little boy. There was no room in the car for Michelle, and the 30-hour drive from their home in California to the Chicago area was just too far for a three-year-old. It was Mike's idea to leave her with family, telling Donna that they would settle in and then bring Michelle out to them. Donna agreed to the arrangement, but said she had no idea that when Mike drove off with Michelle, she would never see her daughter again. Donna said it was her understanding that Michelle went to live with Mike's mother, Jane Lambert. The investigator seemed surprised at how nonchalant Donna was about not knowing where her daughter was. He recalled that she actually shrugged when he asked why she never brought Michelle home again. When asked about Rich hearing her one night crying and talking about Michelle being dead, Donna admitted it was possible that he did hear that, but she said it was only because Michelle had been gone for so long. The investigator asked why she would think Michelle was dead if she had left her in the care of family And Donna said she didn't mean dead dead, just dead to her. She wasn't open to Michelle coming back into her life. So this investigator is sitting across the table, casually talking to a woman who hadn't seen her daughter since she was three years old and didn't seem to care much about where she was. So he pushed a little, telling Donna that it was hard to believe She never tried to find Michelle, even just out of curiosity. Donna seemed to agree that it was hard to believe, but that's how it was. Other than maybe being in Canada, Donna had nothing to offer about Michelle's whereabouts any of the seven times the investigator directly asked her. 
So let's go ahead and look at the few things Donna did give up in this interview. Because the PI hired by Michelle's aunt, he had already checked into pretty much all of this. In checking with Mike Kent's family, they learned that Mike's mother, Jaina Lambert, was an alcoholic who had breast cancer. She never had custody of Michelle, ever. And by the time Michelle was last seen in mid-1969, Jane was already sick and not in a position to care for a small child. And surely, when she died in 1972, they would have noticed a six-year-old around. And through the investigation, they also learned that Jane's funeral was held just an hour away from where Mike and Donna were living in Illinois, and Donna did not attend the funeral. She believed this woman had custody of her daughter, and now this woman was dead, and she didn't even go to the funeral to look for Michelle. As for the Michelle's in Canada story, that too had been ruled out. Yes, there was a relative with a daughter named Michelle around the same age, but that was just a coincidence. Michelle was a very popular name in the 60s and 70s. So the investigator with the DA's office, as he's sitting there talking to Donna, already knows her story is BS. So he told her they already knew that the Michelle in Canada was not Donna's daughter. And the investigator said, quote, I got a feeling this has probably been eating at you for all these years, end quote. And Donna started crying, saying that that was the last thing she could have hoped for, meaning that her Michelle was alive and well in Canada. Without that, Donna claimed she had no idea where Michelle was or what happened to her. The DA's office had all they were going to get from Donna, which was mostly nothing. They spent a year investigating outside of Donna's story and still found no sign that Michelle was alive. But they also had no body, no crime scene, no witnesses, no forensics, nothing. And being that this was 35 years down the road, there was no reasonable expectation that they would have any of those things. This was a purely circumstantial case, and it always would be. The DA decided to move forward, and in August 2004, arrest warrants were issued for 57-year-old Donna Prentice and 62-year-old Mike Kent. Donna was arrested at her Wisconsin home where she lived with her third husband, and Mike was arrested in Illinois as he walked out of a courthouse after dealing with a minor traffic charge. One of the first calls Mike made was to his son, the same one who he took from California to Illinois. He just wanted his son to know that he never hurt Michelle. And that's also what he told the police. He didn't hurt Michelle. However, he did know where she was. And he did know that she was no longer alive. 
Mike sat down for a recorded interview slash confession, and he's told a story that happened back in the summer of 1969, as best as he could remember it. He said the little boys were eating breakfast and Donna yelled for Michelle to get up and come eat. When Michelle did not come down after a few minutes, Donna went up to the room to wake her up. Donna then walked back out of the room, totally pale, and leaned against the wall. Mike knew something was wrong. He went into Michelle's room and found her in her pajamas, lying in the fetal position and completely unresponsive. He said his initial thought was that she was dead. Mike then touched Michelle to check and could feel that she was cold. Mike went into the hallway and told Donna that Michelle was, quote, gone. The two cried for a bit, and then Donna said, what are we going to do now? Though claiming he did not know how or why Michelle died, Mike said calling the paramedics didn't cross his mind. Though Michelle did not have any obvious injury and there was no blood, Mike believed Donna had done something to her, and that's why she was asking him what they should do next. According to what his son later told NBC News, Mike loved Donna and thought he was protecting her. Mike decided to hide Michelle's body. His words were, quote, I had packed up Michelle in the garage and put it on the floor in the back seat. End quote. The way he phrased this made me wonder if what he packed Michelle in was that cardboard box that Rich had remembered seeing. Mike then told the investigators that he drove up to the canyon, dug a shallow grave, and buried Michelle wrapped in a blanket. He then covered her grave with stones to keep the animals away and then put more dirt over her. And by canyon, he meant a nearby canyon in the Santa Ana Mountains. Mike told the police that he believed Donna had killed Michelle the night before. Because the night before she was found dead, Mike was out and Donna was home alone with her. Mike said he was gone for several hours that night because he was returning a motorcycle he had stolen. Now, the details of how he found himself returning something he had stolen have not been released, and those details are really besides the point, because after 35 years, it would be hard to prove any alibi, let alone one that wasn't on the up and up. Mike believed that whatever happened that caused Michelle's death had to have happened while he was gone. Though there were a lot of things Mike didn't know in the statement, he did give the police something they didn't have before, and that was somewhere to search for Michelle's remains. But they knew it was still a shot in the dark. After all that time that passed, and with a body as small as Michelle's would have been, it would be difficult to find. And that's if Mike was, number one, telling the truth, and number two, accurately remembering where he had buried her. 
For a mountain range, the Santa Ana Mountains aren't necessarily a large mountain chain, but it's still a mountain range with a lot of area to cover. What if he said it was in one canyon, but it was actually in another? What if he wasn't all the way in the canyon, but on the edge of it? In addition to that, canyons are prone to flooding, and this one particularly. Over 35 years, this area had numerous floods, and Mike had, admittedly, only dug a shallow grave. A search was conducted over five days in September 2004, shortly after the arrests, but nothing was found. This was going forward as a no-body homicide case. Though bail was set, both Mike and Donna were held in jail pending trial because they could not pay it. Donna did initially try to fight extradition, but she was eventually sent from Wisconsin to California. Mike didn't fight extradition. He didn't fight much at all because, frankly, he was dying. He was on the liver transplant list in Illinois, but even with that, he had kidney failure due to his diabetes. He was a very sick man. And that's probably why he was so quick to tell his story. He was not going to live long enough to go to prison for anything. Mike was willing to testify against Donna at trial, but again, they didn't anticipate he would live long enough to see that day. The state wanted to record his testimony in advance from the hospital, but Donna's defense attorney objected in January 2005. He said he needed more time to prepare for cross-examination. Seeing as Mike was going to be the reasonable alternative suspect at her trial, time was needed to really dig into his past. The judge overruled the defense and said that they could take Mike's testimony from his literal deathbed. But that didn't happen. The courts didn't move quickly enough and Mike had slipped into a coma. He died in early February 2006. Though he did not testify, the state did have his initial recorded statement, which got them through a preliminary hearing. Donna Prentice would stand trial for the second-degree murder of her daughter, Michelle Pulsifer. It would then take another two and a half years to go to trial, with Donna sitting in pretrial detention the entire time. The state's theory of the case was that Donna killed Michelle the night before while Mike was out of the house, only to then discover her in the morning. The defense countered that if Michelle was dead, it made more sense that Mike did it. He had a history of abuse and assault. Donna, however, did not. The jury heard Donna's recorded statement to the DA investigator and her tale about how Michelle was given to a family member by Mike and that she never tried to find her. And they also heard Mike's statement to the police, which the defense was actually in favor of the jury hearing. While the prosecution may have framed it as Mike implicating Donna in a murder, 
The defense said that if you listen to what was actually said, it exonerated Donna. Mike said that Donna went to get Michelle and found her dead. But he didn't say she yelled for him, she started screaming, or she put on any type of show. She quietly stepped into the hallway, according to Mike, with all the color drained from her face. If Donna knew Michelle was already dead and had killed her the night before, how did she pull off this physical reaction of shock? That's not something that is easily faked. But the defense said that's only if Mike's story was true, which it wasn't. The truth, according to the defense, was that Donna truly did not know. The jury did not hear from Donna directly, aside from her recorded interview, but through her attorney, they learned her side of the story. Donna truly believed, according to her defense, that Michelle was alive with family, and she actually wanted Michelle to be brought back to her, but Mike said no. And she was too terrified to push back because Mike had directly threatened her life. He had her sit in their bed and he fired a bullet into the headboard while she was sitting there. He warned that if she tried to contact Michelle, he would actually kill her. The reason Mike did this was because he was the one who killed Michelle and he could only cover it up if he kept Donna from learning the truth. If Michelle was dead, it was Mike who had killed her and buried her body, lying to Donna right along with everyone else about where she was. The defense witnesses were people who could set up a pattern of violence on Mike's part. They even had the help from one of the state's witnesses, Rich Jr., who said Mike abused him and his mother. They also had an ex-girlfriend and an ex-business partner who could also testify to his abuse and assault. They also had Mike Kent's criminal record. He had 17 arrests and was convicted four times. Some of those were for assault and domestic abuse. Donna's defense attorney told NBC News that he knew that painting Mike Kent as a terrible person would also cast a shadow on Donna. She dated him, married him, and stayed with him, even as he was violent towards her and her son. But that really couldn't be avoided. And then add to that the fact that the defense was asking the jury to make a bit of a leap. Donna had lived in Wisconsin and away from Mike for 25 years. The defense was saying that Donna was so terrified that in the 25 years since leaving Mike, moving to another state, and speaking to an investigator about Michelle's whereabouts, she was still too scared to say anything. According to the defense, that was because when Donna and Mike split up in 1979, it wasn't the first time. She had left him once before, and he found her. He tracked her down, he pulled out a gun, 
and forced her to go home with him. She had no reason to believe that if she started asking his family about where Michelle was, that she would be safe. The jury took the case in June 2007. After 15 hours of deliberation over four days, the jury deadlocked. They came to a 10-2 split in favor of conviction. In the U.S., since the year 2020, jury decisions have to be unanimous in one direction or the other due to a Supreme Court verdict. And before that, that was true in nearly every jurisdiction. In 2007, when this trial happened, there were two states that allowed non-unanimous decisions, Louisiana and Oregon. We'll be covering a case where that applies in an upcoming episode. But this case occurred in California, which always required a unanimous verdict, so the judge declared a mistrial. The state vowed to retry Donna, which they did in 2008. The case was essentially the same, except her new defense attorney leaned much more heavily on Donna's position as a battered spouse. They figured they could show both that Mike Kent was capable of great violence while more fully explaining why Donna stayed quiet for so long. As a layperson putting myself in the role of a juror, I think this was a very good strategy because I also do not get Donna. I don't get how so long after Donna was away from Mike, she was still too scared to even look for Michelle. She had an investigator from the DA's office in her home. She could have confided in him and gotten protection. But she didn't seem moved or motivated to find her daughter. The idea that she didn't know what happened to Michelle and she was too scared for 25 years after she left Mike to find out really was the weakest part of the defense's case. So shoring this up was the right move. They called an expert who could talk about the long-term impacts of domestic abuse on a victim. The second jury took the case in December 2008 and deliberated for eight days. And then they deadlocked again. This time it was 11 to 1 in favor of acquittal for second-degree murder and 7 to 5 in favor of conviction for the lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter. The judge declared mistrial number two, and the jurors later said that the deliberations were heated and stressful. The prosecution said that they were prepared to take this to trial again for the third time, but the judge put a stop to it at a hearing a week later. Because the split on the murder charge was nearly an acquittal, and it was the second deadlocked jury, the judge determined that the state did not have a high likelihood of a conviction if they went forward. He dismissed the second-degree murder charge against Donna with prejudice. That meant the charge could never be brought against her again in this case. The judge did chastise Donna for the cover-up before he released the 62-year-old from custody after more than four years behind bars. 
Donna cried with relief, while other members of Michelle's family cried in frustration that they still didn't know exactly what happened to her or where her body was. Some jury members spoke to the media. They said that they all agreed Donna had deserted her daughter. She sent her off with a relative who died three years later and did nothing to find out what happened to her. Some suspected she didn't look for Michelle because she knew what happened, but that wasn't enough to prove she was responsible. It was reasonable to believe that it was Mike who had actually killed Michelle. And I don't necessarily disagree with their logic here. I do think second-degree murder was a bit of a reach when they couldn't prove how Michelle was killed, and there were two adults in that house, one of them with a propensity towards violence. That person went on to abuse Michelle's brother, so I definitely see him as a reasonable alternative suspect. What I think they proved at trial was that Donna likely knew Michelle was dead and lied about her whereabouts to cover it up. That could be explained by guilt or by the fact she was an abused woman afraid of her husband. And she didn't come forward about it later because she did have some legal culpability and some fear. In my opinion, I think Donna saw staying quiet as the easier thing to do. Doing nothing was the path of least resistance, and that's what she did. Was it right? Absolutely not. I watched a video once on the actions of abuse victims in placating their abusers. Maybe they pushed family away, maybe they got in an argument with a friend who did nothing wrong, but their abusive partner thought they did. Maybe they even covered up for their partner's illegal doings. The message of the video was basically that in avoiding victim blaming, we need to make sure we're not infantilizing grown people. This video was from the point of view of someone who had been in a long-term abusive relationship, and he said that was a hard thing for him to do, to take accountability for the choices he made that protected himself but hurt others. In this case, by the time Donna was arrested, the statute of limitations on a lot of the lesser charges, like failure to report a death or even accessory after the fact, had long expired. Legal accountability was just not going to happen here, or it was at least not going to happen on paper. Because the sentence for accessory after the fact in California, it's less time than Donna Prentice served doing pretrial detention. So at the end of the day, in my non-expert opinion, Donna served the time for the crime the state could prove, regardless of what's written down on the legal paperwork. Legally, she is not guilty. I can see why those four years on pretrial detention is not enough for everyone. It's certainly not enough time for those who believe Donna killed Michelle or turned away as Mike did it. And what about Dick and Rich? For the 35 years that Donna tried to hide Michelle's whereabouts and for the 11 years she kept Rich away from Dick, robbing him of watching his son grow up? Where is the justice for that? While custody laws and standards have changed and Dick would have had more options today, 
There are still parents who don't get to see their kids because they get told it's a civil matter. Not everyone has five or ten thousand dollars to spend on a lawyer to go back to court. And while you can obviously represent yourself in court, there are barriers to getting paperwork filed, making sure you stay on top of things. There is a reason we hire attorneys for these. It's not exactly an accessible system. Whatever is keeping people from being able to pursue this in court, these parents are losing years and even decades with their kids because of it. And in this case, a three-year-old child slipped through the cracks for 35 years. I'm not an expert in literally anything and certainly not family law, but I have to believe there's something we can do earlier in cases of custodial interference. We should be able to do something before people spend five to $10,000 on a lawyer on what the police call a civil matter, but looks a whole lot like kidnapping. We need to make entrance into family court for these custody matters more accessible because even those who do have the money to get in there will go months without seeing their kids while the matter is resolved. Some cases, they go years or even decades without their children. In this case, five decades. If alive today, Michelle Kelly Pulsifer would be 56 years old. If you have any information on her whereabouts, you can call the Orange County District Attorney's Office at 714-245-8408. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.